Hi, I'm Peter, VK3PB, and welcome to Amethologic episode 22. Tommy and George are on summer holidays at the moment, and they've asked me to fill in with hosting duties for this episode. It'll be a short episode, but we'll be back to usual uh, in our next episode. First up, here's part two of the Signals Museum tour. Here, is a, here are a couple of items of very early wireless communication. This is a heliograph, and the heliographs came in a couple of forms. Uh, a lot of them had a second mirror, so if the sun was behind you, then you could reflect the sun onto the mirror and signal. And it's, the signalling is just done by having a Morse key on the back, and as you operate the Morse key, it moves the mirror a little bit so that the, the light flashes at the receiver. So you're using light to send Morse code? You're using the sun itself to send Morse code. So obviously it's not much good at night time. So in terms of the dots and the, da the dits and the dars, uh, would a flash be a dar or a dit or...? Um, or is it the length of the flash? I thought I think it was the gap between the flashes. So mm -hmm. I think that the dots were when the mirror turned away, so that you lost the light. Um, and because you can only use that at daytime, because you're using the sun, they had signalling lamps to communicate with. In World War One, they had lamps like this with a shutter, and they had a kerosene flame, and they used to open and close the shutter to send the Morse. But um, later on, they had electric globes and batteries to to send Morse. The trouble with the kerosene operated lamps was that you could smell the kerosene burning so that the enemy could smell that you had a lamp um, in the trenches so they'd uh, bring artillery in on top of you. But this is a, a mannequin wearing a jungle green uniform um, and on the back there's a, a radio but the, uh, the uniform was actually probably wrong because uh, they wouldn't start wearing green uniforms till the mid 60s whereas the radio is about a 1960 uniform. Now, how much power did this radio actually put out and uh, what frequency was it on? Well, it operated between 38 and 55 megahertz, and if you're very lucky, you get a watt out of it. So if with a short whip antenna, which is there, like a tape antenna, you'd possibly, under ideal conditions, get perhaps four kilometres of range. Yeah, well, probably could work on the six metre band, but uh, gee, one watt, <laughs> it's yes. not going to give you much range, I wouldn't think. That's right, and it's all valves as well. Um, it, it was in operation until about 1970, so the early Vietnam days, so possibly people might have worn that uniform in Vietnam with, the, uh, with that radio on their backs. Right. Okay, this is an ANPRC 25 set. It was used um, until it was replaced by the 77 set, and it was used in Vietnam. Right. This is the ANPRC 77. It uh, looks exactly the same as the 25. The only difference is the internals. It, this is fully solid state, whereas the 25 had valves in it. This uh, operates between 30 and 76 megahertz and 50 kilohertz steps, um, narrowband FM, and it was um, brought into service about 1970. The output power is about two watts. It comes with a couple of antennas. This, this tape antenna here but a lot of soldiers weren't very happy with uh, the tape antenna because as they moved through the jungles they thought they could be seen. So a lot of them did very um, clever things which were ideal for the radio transmission. They'd either bend them right down, and of course you can imagine how much signal you'd get when you did that. Or well, some of them would actually just fold them up and put a rubber band around them so you'd have the antenna down there somewhere or other. And again you can imagine how, uh, how good a signal would be radiated by that antenna. There's also a long antenna, but that was never used in the jungle. It would just tangle up with everything. This is a World War II Japanese receiver that was used in Borneo and confiscated at the end of World War II. It's beautifully made. 
Absolutely. I think of all the receivers, uh, sorry, transceivers that I've seen here, this is the one I'd most want to take home. It's just beautifully put together. Appears to uh, cover a number of different bands, and from this Japanese chart at the front here, looks like it might cover uh, from about 1500 kilohertz up to about uh, 3.5 megs. It's, um, uh, it'd be great to actually get a manual for this and uh, be able to work out what it does uh, and it, it's so portable too it's actually it, it is more portable than some of the biscuit tin uh, receivers that we were looking at a little mm. bit earlier yeah it's um, very compactly made um, very rugged presumably it's a receiver only uh, not being able to read Japanese it's a bit hard to tell but it looks like it's yeah, it's a receiver only. They've got plus 90 volt and uh, plus 1.5 volt plugs uh, at the back. And uh, valves with their labels Japanese with Japanese writing, so can't tell what they are. Yeah, I notice the model number is just tucked under here. It says UF minus uh, 134. Yes. So uh, maybe, or and also UF minus 109A. So that's probably the, the valve number, perhaps. Oh yeah, could well be. Could be yes. But uh, look, uh, looks a very clean, very well-made uh, piece of equipment. And just floats back into there. Huh? This is a portable Japanese walkie-talkie used for communications within infantry units in the field in the Southwest Pacific conflict. It has a transmitter and receiver operating between 24 and 47 megahertz and used only one dual purpose valve for transmit and receive. It's powered by a 3 volt or 135 volt battery or from an optional external hand generator. Well, let's, uh, the, you've got the hand generator just over there. Let's, ha let's have a quick look at that. Okay, I'll get that out. It's funny um, uh, that to see an old hand crank like that because uh, uh, quite a number of modern uh, shortwave receivers uh, are actually incorporating hand cranks to actually power them these days. That's right, they've wind up um, clockwork motor in the modern ones and then they run. Well, presumably this will open. No, it won't. No, well, but still a, um, uh, an interesting uh, way of powering a radio, particularly one that's got some fairly high voltages in it. Yes. It's actually got a circuit on the back and it does put out 135 volts, so presumably, and it puts out 3 volts. Well, there you go. So it's probably got the dual generator in there. This is a signalling lamp, um, commonly referred to as a Begbie lamp. It was used for signalling from ship to shore and for other um, similar applications. It had a kerosene light in there and a shutter, and the shutter would open and shut and you would send Morse code, so standard Morse code. The only trouble was that the enemy could smell the kerosene and then they'd know that uh, you're using lamps. So if you used it in the trenches in the war, the enemy would know that you're there and uh, from the smell of the kerosene, know roughly where it's coming from and drop artillery in on top of you. Okay, Jim, uh, what about the role of women in World War II? Uh, did they have much of a role in signals? Yes, they did. After a little while, they realised that a lot of the jobs that the men were doing, men in uniform, could be done by women. So they raised a women's army called AWAS, um, Army Women's Australian Army Women's Service, AWAS, 
and the women then released the men and they were doing things like dispatch writing and encrypting and decrypting messages and sending messages and operating radios uh, mainly from within Australia itself although some of them did end up in New Guinea but they freed up uh, many men and the men could then fight in the front line there was something like about 20,000 women in World War II that uh, freed up men so that men could go forward and fight. Yeah. Did uh, they have any role as spotters? No, not really. That was a bit too dangerous unless they happened to be there uh, working as missionaries on missionary stations and some of them were spotters but they, they tried to get most of the civilians out of New Guinea during the war. Yeah, just for the people overseas who perhaps not familiar with the term spotters, what, what was a spotter? Well, spotters, there were the spotters were army people who were behind enemy lines right through New Guinea and through the islands watching enemy movements and reporting them back to Australia, particularly aircraft movements and movements like that. There were coast watchers who did the same, they reported to the Navy, the spotters reported back to the army. Yeah, pretty dangerous occupation uh, because no doubt the enemy would be using uh, radio direction finding to try to track these spotters down. Yes, and they had to move. Perhaps we should have a look at some of the equipment they used. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, here's some of the equipment that the spotters would have used. Remember they're behind enemy lines. On the right is the receiver, uh, locally made by AWA in Melbourne. And in the middle there's just a speaker box that they used to, uh, to listen to the receiver. And on the left is a crystal-controlled um, transmitter. They had uh, AWA th Model 3B and then later on 3BZ systems. They operated between 3.3 and 9.7 MHz. They would be behind enemy lines, watching enemy movements, the movements of aeroplanes, um, etc., and then report back to Australia and tell uh, the Australians what was going on. Of course, the Japanese would DF them, so they would then um, have to pack up and move and not only did they have these three items of equipment, they had to have a petrol generator to charge batteries and batteries, etc. So they really required the help of natives, probably five natives, to help them. Yeah, this photo shows a typical setup with two spotters in the jungles in uh, New Guinea. And they probably would have typically had about five natives to help them move all the equipment. And they'd have to move regularly, and they were sometimes very, very close to the enemy, to the Japanese. So the Japanese were very keen to find them. They fly over the top and try and see them, so they'd have to be very good at camouflage and very good at moving through the jungle without being seen, and also ensure that the natives didn't um, give them away as well, so they had to be uh, good friends with the natives. And what's this map uh, about just over here on the right? Yeah, this map shows um, a large number of um, spotting stations, probably not all of them, but uh, places where spotters um, had outstations fitted with various crystals. So the yellow ones had um, this magic frequency called X and we still don't know what that was but it was an X crystal and then the, uh, there's some other pins there for um, the red ones are the unit headquarters and the blue ones are the sub-unit um, sub headquarters or sub-sector headquarters. So the yellow stations would report back in to the blue stations and uh, they'd report back up through the, through the system. But they were right across all the islands and um, way out there to the east of New Guinea so that they could get the best um, um, idea of what the Japanese were doing and give advanced warning. The spotters were members of the New Guinea Air Warning Wireless Company which was raised uh, during the war. The 39th Battalion fought on the Kokoda Track or the Kokoda Trail um, was what the Americans called it and after they um, withdrew from there they were then invited to become spotters and to get go behind enemy lines and uh, watch what the, uh, the Japanese were doing. 
they had a very fast crash course in radio and communications and how to put up antennas and all sorts of other things. They already had all the infantry skills. And once they knew how to use their radios, they then went in behind the enemy lines and uh, became spotters. Sadly, there's only a few of them left. There's only two or three left in Melbourne these days, um, and they're all getting fairly old. But it was a, a very uh, a, a group of very brave people in a very vital role. Now, uh, here's a piece of equipment that I wish I had at home. Um, uh, you want to tell the viewers what uh, what this is, Jim? Yes, it's the ubiquitous frequency meter BC211. It was every ham's dream to have one of these and it was the standard for measuring frequency um, after World War II uh, right up until we got digital equipment. The, um, just about every ham had one of these and it was the best way to measure frequency. And there's a very interesting story about a radio inspector who's going around checking hams in the countryside. He went round and one of the things that hams had to have was a frequency meter. So we went round to one of the hams, um, checked, and uh, this ham produced his BC211, so the radio inspector was very happy. Then that ham rang the next ham and told him that the inspector's coming round, so they quickly moved the uh, BC211 to the next ham. This went on with about half a dozen hams in the district, and when the inspector inspected the last one, he said, oh, that's really good, you've all got a, a BC211. Um, it's amazing how remarkably similar they are. They've even got the same serial number. <laughs> Well, that wraps us up for today. Uh, look, I barely scratched the surface here. There is just simply so much communications equipment that to do it justice, you've really got to come down here in person and uh, have a look for yourselves. Thanks a lot, Major Jim. Okay. Major Jim Gordon, VK3ZKK. And um, look, uh, I, I, as I said, I'd encourage people to come down and have a look for themselves. Yes, please do. Okay, thanks, Jim. Thank you. Jim? Yep. Okay, in our last issue we had a quiz question about uh, this rather strange looking Morse key. Um, can you give us the answer now, Jim? What is it? I believe the answer is that this Morse key was used in the very early days of um, undersea cables. Very long cables in those days were just like a very large capacitor, so if you tried to send Morse down them, you had to charge this huge capacitor. Um, people couldn't quite understand why that was, and a very clever mathematician called Heverside or Heverside, whoever you want to pronounce his name, came up with the theory that they should put little inductors in series with this cable to turn it into a transmission line. Everyone laughed at him and told him he was mad, but a few years later someone actually tried it and it worked, and then they could then transmit uh, Morse because it then looked like a, a transmission line or a length of coax or whatever rather than the huge capacitor. But before they did that, um, they used to send dots and dashes as a plus 100 or minus 100 volt signal down the line and they could only send Morse at around about five words a minute. So we believe that one of the keys was for a dot, the other one was for a dash and when they pushed the, this key it would operate a large relay, switch 100 volts into the line. When they pushed that one it would switch another relay and put minus 100 volts into the line and at the other end they'd, uh, they'd see the needle go either left or right for a dot or a dash. Right, quite intriguing. Yes, so it, it's, it's very um, unusual, and the reason it's unusual is there was probably only a very small number of undersea cables, so they wouldn't have needed many of these keys, so they're quite rare. Well, that's all for this episode. Tommy, George and I will be back next episode with our regular format. Cheerio.